everyone, and welcome to XYZ, the podcast about CNC, automation, robotics, business, and more. My name is Aaron Goff, owner of Goff Custom Knives, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Frank, from the Frank Brothers Guitar Company. How are you, mate? I'm well. I've missed you. Yeah, I know, buddy. I've missed you, too. <laughs> it's been a whole week since we've talked, although I did see you last week. You did. So that was too much for you, eh? Yeah, I was I was having a Yeah. <laughs> Exhausted from my... Uh, our interaction i know i got to see your new house it's very shiny yeah well beside being covered in dust it's pretty shiny <laughs> <laughs> yes i was uh amazed how much dust was on it given it's only been in there for a couple of weeks but yeah we make a lot of dust i guess that's you know what, what they say if you're not making shop. dust you're not making money i guess sir i guess sir i try to contain my dust as much as possible isn't that the machinist thing? You know, if you're not making chips, you're not making money. That's the mantra, I thought. I guess so. I guess so. I'm a very poor businessman. So <laughs> <laughs> if you're not eating chips, then you're not yeah. spending money. <laughs> yeah. So what have you been up to this week, mate? What have you been working on? Um, well, we've, we've had some ups and downs, some highs and lows. It's been a bit of a crazy oh, no. week. Lots give, happened. Give I feel like a... I've got a lot to talk to you about. Oh, that's good. Okay, let's hear the lows first. Um, we had to let someone go. Oh, no. Yeah. Was this someone that had been with you for a while? Or? Not too long. No? Yeah, I mean, higher, slow, fire, fast, right? Like That we that should have been the case. It was probably mm. too, too slow. It was just a fit thing. Nothing beyond mm, okay. that. But it's hard. Like, that's the first time we've ever had to do that, and I feel bad. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's fair. Um, so that was... A bummer, but it always is. But it's better to pull the bandaid off than to like let everyone suffer. With, yeah, you know, like if uh, if you said it's a fit thing, you know, if they're just not meshing with the team, then you know mm -hmm. that that can really ruin the dynamic if you let it go on. Yeah, and just making sure somebody's actually like the good fit for the actual role too. I mean, yeah. Um. So, and on a more positive note, we'll be. We're going to start the hiring process again, which is yeah. always kind of exciting. So if someone listening wants to work with you guys, they should uh, get in touch. Keep an eye out for, uh, go follow us at, at Frank underscore brothers uh, on mm -hmm. Instagram. We'll probably post, let everyone know there, but also we're just going to you know post it through the regular channels. Kijiji, uh, Craigslist. Could, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff <laughs> like that. Facebook marketplace. Yeah. I mean, I bet you that would work. Probably. Yeah. So what were the other ups? What were the other ups this week? Um, we got vacuum Ooh. in our, um, uh, uh, with our fixture plate. Nice. So, so Nick needs to explain a little bit there. You're doing vacuum fixturing on your house. Yes. And now you've got vacuum fixturing work. My cat is yelling. I don't know if you can I hear did that. hear that actually yeah, this time. He, he's very loud. Um, but it's, you've got it working now. We do. Yeah. So it's exciting. Black Phenolic from mm -hmm. Garolite uh, from McMaster Car, which looked very badass looking. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so that's the uh, the fixture plate is a, basically it's like four vacuum chambers essentially. So it gives us, right. uh, we, it'll, it'll allow us to, to um, fixture different shaped uh, fixture plates. Mm -hmm. And uh so and then three no five eighth inch um bushings or dowel pins that stick up out of that and then the fixture 
fixtures have the female bushing. Right. Uh, so that the fixture plate will vacuum down to the the, the table. Okay. Oh, which is the fixture plate? <laughs> I always confuse myself with this. Right. One's a subplate. Yes. So I'd say the subplate is the one that stays on your machine, and the fixture plate is the one that you're taking on and off. Right. So the subplate has four different vacuum zones. Right. The fixture plate has the three eighth inch or the five eighth inch female bushings. That'll suck down. The you know, it'll um then on top of that fixture plate will be whatever we're machining. Right. So those fixture plates themselves, some of them are also going to be vacuum. Mm, right. So you have to do a pass through. Yes. Or it's I guess it's it's not actually pass through. Yeah. It's um it's you have its like own a separate line. Connection. Yeah. Yeah, that and, makes sense because you don't want to lose vacuum on the top by accidentally cutting through a workpiece or something, and then lose vacuum on your fixture plate and have the whole thing get sucked into the spindle. Yeah, like a ten pound piece of mahogany gets <laughs> right. lifts up and flies across the room. Through yeah. the the sheet metal, through the next room. <laughs> I don't know if mahogany would have that kind of velocity. Yeah, so you, you're referring there to the video that I sent you of that face melt, right? I watched it. So if you guys, I put it in the show notes for, I think it was the last show, where basically a, a really big fly cutter, it's what, it's got to be like a foot long or something. Yeah, it was bigger than in, I was actually even expecting. Yeah, in a Haas machine. They, I think it's a programming error or they spin it up too high and it fails and it leaves the machine. It goes through the sheet metal enclosure. It goes through a concrete wall. It goes through a metal wall. It goes through a steel chair and then it embeds itself in a wall. Yeah, after awesome. that. it was Yeah, it's like one of those things because no one was hurt. You can like appreciate the fury of this thing, you know? Yeah, it was wild. It made you yeah. appreciate, yeah, respect uh, the tool. Yeah, don't put a one one foot fly cutter in your. Yeah, that seems like an insane thing to do. Um, yeah, I think they're facing cylinder block heads. It's kind of a common thing. Oh, like, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're geez. not planning on doing anything so, right. you know, wild. But uh, the basically the first op the first thing we're trying to get done is uh, is transfer the body uh, machining like the the, the uh, parts the um, that we machine for the body. On, mm -hmm. from the axes onto the Haas. So what we have now is a, a subplate, a fixture plate that fits on top of that, and we can mount a mahogany body or any, whatever we use, mahogany, we use Karina, which is just another type of wood, right. ash. Uh, you can now put that down on the, on, on the Haas. We still, nice. we still haven't cut wood, but <laughs> we're close. We're closing in on that goal. Awesome. And it looks great. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that black phenolic that you used for the table looked really good. I might actually have to look at some of that and see uh, for handle scales. Yeah, yeah, good. totally. It actually, like, so Mark, um, he he came up with that idea of using the black mm -hmm. phenolic. Uh, and he used, what was it? What You were there when he said it. It was um, linseed oil, double boiled yeah. linseed oil, and right. finished it, and it looked awesome. So I don't know. How do you finish your handle scales? You just wipe them down with mineral oil, okay, and then yeah. um, I dry them off with a microfiber cloth. So, I mean, really all you're trying to do is, like, get the dust out of the pores. Because right. the material itself doesn't actually change color. It's just when it's dusty from machining, it looks lighter. looks looks mm -hmm. crappy. Um, yeah. I, I mean, the G10, which is the material I normally use for my knife handles, holds its color really well. Um, 
Yeah, it does. So, I mean, it looks great. It's, it's vibrant. Um, mm-hmm. This stuff is paper, like the paper Garolite or phenolic. So I yeah. don't know how that would like, does that change your opinion of how no, it would it's, act as a knife skill? It's been used for um, knife handles for a long time, actually. It's just like paper Makata is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it looks, it looks great. Like I just, I haven't really used much of it previously, um, but I'm expanding the types of handle scales that I'm offering at the moment. So, yeah, are you going to tell people that you're trying to um, pilfer wood from us for handle skills? <laughs> I just told everyone. Not yet. Yeah, you just told everyone. Thanks. Well, I've actually got a um, uh, our mutual friend Jeremy gave me a giant block of wenge. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, like that thing weighs like almost as much as a piece of aluminum wood. <laughs> you know, it's the same size. Like it's really dense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd really like to make some handle scales out of that. I think I've got enough to probably make like probably 50 handle scales yeah wow so i know it's so nice to how small your object is for that mm-hmm. reason yeah not, could, not much materials cost if you're talking about wood i think g10 would be more expensive than wood i've got scrap but you can mm. mm-hmm. you can just have have to come and have a look have a poke around um yeah uh well so so yeah that's that's where we're at like um, nice. it's just it's awesome like mark is just like dialed this thing in he's getting really comfortable with the Haas I get a, I'm like I need, I want to stop start mm-hmm. putting my time in with with it um it's funny like when we did the axes we got that up and running it was so uh, it was this was this is still collaborative but it was a right. lot more collaborative I'm just so much busier now with other right. things um but I'm what I'm really keen to do is watch your um fusion video mm mm-hmm yeah, I think um, you'll get a lot of value out of that for mm-hmm. sure to get started in Fusion. I'm I'm doing the next one right now. So the first one was like making a Lego brick. You know, it was very, very introductory. Mm-hmm. The second one that I'm working on at the moment is um, making a knife start to finish like blade handle scales, all that in, in Fusion. Um, so yeah, that should be fun. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched it. But well, you should get on that. I know. <laughs> um, you should yeah, send I've me the, been... the rough edit so I can yeah, so yeah. I feel special yeah for sure man sounds good <laughs> I've been working on fixturing too eh? I've, so I've been doing the fixturing for my kitchen knives um, and that honestly was a total shit show it made me feel like a real noob um, uh, like it's it's fine now but <laughs> sorry like I was doing all the toolpaths for so basically my fixtures are made up in two sections. There's kind of an integral subplate, which is um, a one inch thick uh, chunk of aluminum, uh, 16 inches by 22 inches. And I actually had that water jet cut. Right. So I had little like um, kind of slots cut on either side so that I can just bolt it straight down to the table without losing any travel um, and without having to like do a bunch of, you know, machining prep on it. So I bolted it down to the table upside down, machined the locating pins, and then did a bunch of through holes to screw down or to bolt down steel plates on the top of it. And then all of the actual fixtures are those steel plates on the top. Gotcha. Um, so does the, the, the that first aluminum plate, that, that subplate, do you remove it, mm-hmm. put the screws in like every time? 
No, no, no. So basically the steel and aluminum sections all stay together permanently. The only time I would replace the steel top parts is if I was like making a change to the fixture. Oh, because your whole fixture, you have one fixture on it and you just... Yes, and it, com it, it comes off the table. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ah, so if I awesome. need to do a different process, a whole fixture comes off the table. Gotcha. Um, and the problem is that when I... So, you know, I bolt down all those steel components onto the top and then I go to machine all of the locating features in like uh, bolt holes and all that kind of stuff. And in Fusion, I had the the stock set to taller than it should have been. Oh no! Um, so the zero <laughs> the zero point of the fixture was actually like below the table on the CNC. So I ended up cutting everything about fifty thousandths lower than it should have been. Oh, okay. Um, and I didn't realize that I was doing that, so I broke a tool. I broke a half inch roughing end mill in the middle of the fixture because it was taking a bigger cut than uh it should have been i also screwed up the the toolpath for that like it's been so like i don't make new toolpaths for new new parts all that often right you know, mostly i'm making changes to uh, a pretty well dialed in process so rather than doing like the high speed uh machining style where you kind of spiral outward in this case, I just kind of like zigzagged in and then took a full width cut. And yeah, I really shouldn't have done that. Um, it like bogged down the spindle on my machine and I couldn't get there fast enough. So it's, you know, it's like, and I couldn't get there fast enough to hit feed hold. And it like the chip load just kept going up and up until the, it broke the end mill off. Oh yeah. Um, well, at least the machines are robust enough to handle that. It's the oh, no problem. Tool that breaks. Yeah. Like a half inch, half inch solid carbide end mill snapped off yeah no no damage done i feel like our axes would just like explode yeah <laughs> just self destruct the head would just tilt over <laughs> yeah right so yeah that kind of sucked and then i was like oh god like do i re you know so i ordered some spare material do i like pull all these steel plates off and like make new ones because mm. they're all machined on the bottom with locating pins and all oh, that kind of yeah. stuff right like so you do you i put a significant off? amount of work already into these not like a ton, but, you know, a couple of hours. Mm. Um, and in the end, I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to redesign the fixtures, like change the parameters in Fusion so that everything's 50,000 lower <laughs> and just keep on going as if nothing happened. It seems reasonable because you're just changing like, yeah, it was just an offset, essentially. Yeah. And it worked out. It was fine. Um Ultimately, though, the actual entire design of the fixtures should have been a bit taller. Um, so I removed quite a bit of material from the steel. And the, the reason that I focused on making them somewhat low was to keep the weight down. Because with the steel and aluminum parts all together, the whole fixture before any of the machining weighed about 130 pounds. Wow. So it's kind of hard to move it around. Like it's hard um, to... to move it around physically or the for the the machine no it's it's hard to like pick it up off the table and like you know put it away for storage and stuff you know um, it's like, it's doable it's just i don't think i want to do that you know a couple of times a week you're not beefy um, enough exactly not beefy enough so yeah you know i made all the steel parts thinner to cut a bunch of the weight out and the final weight was around uh 70 pounds but by lowering them you know so as you know like most cnc machines can't actually put their spindle on the table mm -hmm. there's always a gap right and by making them that little bit shorter i actually ended up 
with the situation where my tool holders are too short. Oh no. They couldn't reach the, yeah. So this is like, I I'd planned for everything except for this, I guess. Um, so it actually hasn't ended up being a, a problem. I ended up having to pull my tools out of my end mill, end mill holders by about an eighth of an inch. Okay. Um, which isn't that much, but Do you it's use more... a lot of stubby tools. Yeah, really stubby tools, really stubby tool holders. Mm -hmm. um, like most of my tool holders are um, less than two inch gauge length. Right. Um, and like many of them are like down at like one and a half inches gauge length. And then my tools are really stubby too with only like three eighths of an inch of flute length. So it just ended up being that I just had to like expose a bit more of the cutting tool than I would like. Um, but it's fine. It's fine. Have you noticed any anything as a result of that? No, not as yet. I mean, so like these tools are really, these are the ones that Maritool make custom for me. So they're a quarter inch diameter end mill with eight flutes, which, you know, means that they have a really yeah, big strong. core. Yeah. And then the flutes themselves are only three eighths of an inch long. Wow. Okay. So and any how long amount is of tool. The, the overall length of the tool? About, I think it's one and a half, two inches. You know, so I can expose an extra eighth of an inch or whatever, and and all I'm hanging out is like solid carbide. Yeah, you know, cool. it's not like a, a floppy, you know, two flute end mill or something. So, yeah, yeah no issues at all so far. Um, and I'm actually getting really aggressive with the machining. So I'm doing with the kitchen knife machining. I'm doing everything hard milled. Um, I'm starting with like a straight rectangle of A2, and then everything is hard milled out of that. Um, and I'm doing the roughing passes at 120 inches per minute, um, with a two and a half thousandths depth of cut and then full width of cut on the tool. So I'm doing like high feed style milling. Full width of cut. So if you, yeah. if you're using a quarter inch diameter tool. So it has corner radiuses. Okay. Um, it has 60,000 corner radius. So I'm, when I say full width of cut, it's like the full flat bottom of the tool. So it's okay. actually like, uh, 0.1875, so three three sixteenths of an inch. That's pretty significant, um, though. Yeah, and so the interesting thing, basically, I had a tooling engineer a long time ago tell me that if you have a corner radius end mill that has fairly large radius, and you take shallow step downs, then you're basically treating that tool like a high feed mill. So the um, cutting forces, rather than like going sideways into the end mill, because the part of the end mill that you're cutting with is is very close to being flat. Like the the corner radius is, you know, very shallow at that depth of cut. All of the force is going straight up into the spindle. Um, so you can get away with being really aggressive. Like I'm taking um, three and a half thousandths of an inch per flute on that tool. Okay. In in hard steel. In fully like sixty what that that was sixty four Rockwell A two tool steel um that seems that yeah, that's pretty hard to me it's very hard yeah like that's that's harder than most drill bits okay yeah yeah so um yeah like i can but i can still run that aggressively and you know i seem to be getting decent tool life um and what are you going for like finish are you going for speed in that case, I mean, so like one of the things that machinists say, particularly like mold makers, is they're like, you make your money when you're roughing. 
because you have to remove so much material that like if you can get it out of there quicker then you can get to your finishing more quickly interesting and you know the, the surface finish doesn't matter when you're roughing so like you know so that's what you're doing as hard as you can this is a, that, this yeah. is a roughing operation it's, yeah it's my roughing operation um and part of the issue was so this machine so i have two fidals i have millie and vicky and millie is the older one uh that she's a vmc 10 um and previously i've never been able to run feed rates on that machine over 60 inches per minute like i can program it it'll run it but then sometimes when it hits a corner it'll fault out it'll say like servo overload um and i've been trying to work out what was the issue for years and i never really had any luck um but there's this company that I've been talking to, uh, Fidal Parts, and the owner of Fidal Parts is one of the family that originally made the Fidal milling machines. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so he's a super nice dude, Dave, Dave DeCarson. He's a really, really nice guy. I've had a couple of like hour long phone calls with him just because he like was enjoying the conversation. So we just talk, you know? Um, but yeah, so he, he, gave me some pointers i actually ended up tuning retuning the servo drives on that machine and now i'm running 120 inches a minute no problem so that's taken and what would have been an eight hour cycle to make the kitchen knives down to just over four hours wow which is yeah a bit ridiculous yeah so i i'm still in the process of developing those tool paths it's a it's a bit of a tricky thing to machine um hard steel all the way down to like the the blade of that knife is only 10 thousandths of an inch thick um yeah you know so that's like two sheets of copier paper right (laughs) um so yeah it's it's a bit of a tricky thing to to get it right um like i've been having some issues with um resonance kind of building up in the blade and like the whole thing starts like squealing oh and does Um, that does that uh translate to surface a surface finish it does, yeah, and it will. It's not too bad for surface finish, but it will uh, destroy the tools more quickly uh, because it means right. the the tools like kind of vibrating in the right. cut. Um, so honestly, like I'm gonna, I've taken a very low low tech approach to that uh, old school trick, which is modeling clay. You just wedge modeling clay oh, yeah. underneath, because um, basically I've already machined one side of the blade, and then I'm flipping it, machining right. the second side. So that that like empty space underneath is what's calling, causing the vibration. Right. So you just pack it full of modeling clay, clamp it down, and then you're good. I feel like I've also no, heard no of people using um, hot glue. Yeah. So I actually didn't have any modeling clay at the shop, and so I used hot glue for for the some of the test runs. And does, is one better than the other? Is the modeling clay be, modeling clay better? Modeling clay is more reusable, um, and I think it's a I think it's a bit better for damping. Hmm. Um, so I've I've got some on the way i'll be using that for for production yeah cool so yeah it's i'm it's going well so far i'm going to be doing some interesting stuff with this one like i've actually got three separate models um like cad models of this knife um two of them are oversized so the the outline of the knife is actually larger than it will be in real life and one of them is actually missing like a feature from the blade. So the blade itself has like a channel in the middle of it that helps air get in behind food. So it gets released. Oh, cool. Um, but basically those oversized models let me program all of the 3D tool paths so that the, the tool changes direction when it's off the actual blade. Um, so basically that means that I, 
the the parts of the toolpath that are always the sketchiest are when you're reversing directions. Like the the surface finish will change there, or it'll you know because it's slowing down, it will dwell for a second, and so it'll right. bite into the material a bit. By moving all of those direction changes off the actual finished product, I can get a much better surface finish. Um, and it's going to let me do something that I'm excited about, which is I'm actually going to be trying to use a ceramic fiber deburring brush to actually do automated finishing on the machine. Whoa. So it's like kind of, that's a, that's a tool you put in the spindle. Yeah. And it's basically going to be rubbing these, um, ceramic fiber bristles over the surface of the steel and actually like finishing out the tool, tool marks. Interesting. Um, still on the machine and you, but you haven't tried this yet. Um, I've been using, I've been trying it with a nylon bristle brush, um, but because the steel's so hard that the nylon brushes just can't really m move enough material right. to, to do it. But I it does something? Do. It does, yeah. It, it definitely polishes it up. It's just not really taking out the tool marks. Cool. That'd be amazing yeah. if it did. Right? So, yeah, with the ceramic fiber brushes, I, I have been led to believe they should be better. Um, and for the prices, they should be. <laughs> I don't know what the price is yet. No one's told me, and that's always a bad sign. <laughs> if you have to ask, yeah, it's exactly. too expensive. So I'm expecting I'll probably get into it for like, you know, maybe a couple of hundred bucks, but um, that's going to save me a lot of hands-on time. Anything you can do to reduce the downstream processing yeah. is, is yeah, huge. Exactly. So basically, I'm going to be breaking the machining process up into sections. Like, the, basically, the first section is going to be a roughing pass, and it will um, remove most of the material. Then I'll do a semi finish and a finish pass. But all of that is on that initial model where it's actually missing all of the features. It doesn't have any through holes for the pins. It doesn't have that channel for the for the air. It's just a flat blade. And then after that's finished, I'll come in with the brush and do as much finishing as I can. And there's no corners to round over. There's no geometry to lose because it's just a, a flat cavity, right? Okay. And then after that is done, I'll come in and put in all the other features. Um, so like the pin holes and all that kind of stuff. Right. So then what's going to be left for for you? Oh, they'll, they'll still be hand finishing. Unfortunately, my machines aren't good enough to fully... Like I'm pretty confident that if I was programming this on like a Haas VM series mm -hmm. machine or even a VF that I could get it to the point where it's like no hand finishing required. Oh, I think Aaron, your machine, like the super guy. speed machines are, <laughs> yeah, I know. right? <laughs> I know. I think the super speed machines are a little less good on surface finish than the, now you tell me. Well, I, I tried to tell you, <laughs> um, but that's, you know, that's fine. Like I'm, I'm still going to be having a very reasonable amount of hand finishing. I think. So. Right. Well, that'll please all Fingers the, crossed, the right? handmade, no C and C people. <laughs> yeah you know you got to put some some hands on time in it mm -hmm. but that's, that's really cool that's fine. i mean i love the idea of like, finishing has got to be for us mm -hmm. the the biggest uh bottleneck yes and it's like, totally the same on my side too you know like it's um yeah 100 percent the biggest bottleneck so anything i can do to help reduce that is is great especially for a kitchen knife because the area that you have to finish is so much larger oh, yeah um, well, it's, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, like, so I, I, I've been thinking about how to incorporate the CNC, like a CNC process into something I'm currently doing by hand right now, um, okay. which is re-leveling 
the fretboard. And it's something I've mm. become pretty pretty good at and, and fast enough at. But it's like one of these things, it's like, it's kind of, it's hard, it would be a hard thing to pass off to somebody. Right. It's, uh, and it would be something the CNC could do very easily if we were able to fixture it. Okay, so when you say re-leveling the fretboard, you are... Um, okay, so if I remember correctly, you're machining the shape of the fretboard on the CNC. Yeah. Um, from the back, right? So you're putting in dowel holes and stuff. Yeah. And then you flip it. You do the radius on the fretboard. Yes. You cut the slots. Then you glue it to the guitar. Then we glue and it to the neck. You have to... Yeah. Yeah, sorry. You glue it to the neck. And then you have to re-level it, which you're doing, I guess, with like a sanding, radius sanding block? Yes. Okay. And then you're fretting it. Yeah. And doing fretting. And the reason it has to be re-leveled is because as soon as you glue that fretboard to the neck, things change. Right. It's, it's wood. We build in a re what, what's called relief into the neck. So mm -hmm. the neck itself has this sort of um, concave uh, geometry. Right. It's not straight. It's actually curved. Yeah, the piece of wood is not yeah. dead flat. It's got a curve in, in it, a belly. And when you glue the fretboard on, depending on the piece of wood, the density of that wood, what, you know, like species it is, we use different couple different types of materials. It, it in like the fretboard stiffness, things just always end up in a different place. So then once right. it's glued on, I tension the truss rod a specific amount. And then I re-level mm. it by hand. Sometimes there's still a bit, like there's still a big uh, belly or concave. Right. Uh, I guess belly is not the right word. That's the opposite. Because it's it's inward. It's, in, yeah. it's an inny. It's an inny. Con concave <laughs> though. Um, right. So I, you know, sometimes we're talking about the difference between twenty and thirty thou right. of relief. Right, right. Uh, but if I could just tension the rod fixture it on the CNC, the CNC could come back and level the board again. But the complicated thing is that it has to be, it would have to be perfectly square because to how the, the fret slots were cut because those go um, across right. the fretboard. And then it's radiused as well. So... Yeah, and you'd be fixturing it from the back side of the guitar, exactly. which doesn't have any locating features on it really. No. So it's yeah. like, it, it's easy to do by hand. It would be way more complicated to do on the machine. But How long does it take to do it by hand? Well, this is the thing. It kind of depends. It depends how, mm. how that piece of wood is reacted. Sometimes there's a lot more relief that needs to be dialed out. Because we, we kind of put in a, an exaggerated amount of relief and expect to remove some. Right. Because yeah. basically when you, when you untension the rod, you still want there to be some relief. Yes, right. but you don't want to be too much relief because then when it gets down to the assembly part, it's already been fretted. If Tim has to put anything more than a half a turn in, the neck could be potentially compromised. Any more than that, and and you're you're really wrenching on the thing. Right. So, it's something that I really want to be able to do on on the Haas, but maybe isn't the right time. Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I always look at those stuff and I'm like, okay, so what's a half step? You know, is there, could you use the half to make, um, you know, better, more accurate radiusing sanding blocks? Mm. Um, could you have like a set of sanding blocks? 
Um, I'm not sure if you've seen, you can actually get um, diamond abrasive foil. So you can get like foil sheets that have, or they're like, it's like a piece of um, steel shim stock that has diamond abrasive electroplated to it. And then it's got a self-adhesive on the back. So you could make like, um, you know, a radiused aluminum sanding block Mm -hmm. with like diamond, a permanent abrasive attached to it. Oh, you love diamonds. Um, Diamonds are You're great. Always going on about diamonds. Diamonds are great. So um, Nick's Nick's telling me that because <laughs> when I was at their shop, I was talking about diamond. You guys heard about diamonds? <laughs> diamonds, guys, diamonds. Well, for abrasive um, materials, where you need a really good finish. So for the G10 that I use on my handle scales, the diamond. So I'm using PCD diamond end mills um, that Frank at Marital. Again, I'm gonna keep singing this guy's praises because he he had like had them custom made for me. And they're amazing. They are super pricey. It's like 250 bucks an end mill. Oh. But yeah, but I'm still using the first one. Okay. I yeah. like as long as you don't crash them, they basically last forever. Um, which is crazy, you know. Well, that's yeah. So the thing about abrasive, like if we're talking about as a replacement for sandpaper, sandpaper loads mm-hmm. up. That's typically what kills it. Yeah, but um, it's a little bit different, I think, with the diamond abrasive because the electroplating kind of covers up the gaps in between the abrasive grains. Um, so there's not so much space for dust to get in. Mm. And then you can just vacuum it. You know, like I, that's what I do. I, like whenever the abrasive right. starts loading up, you just hit it with a vacuum with a, yeah, a brush. Worse for your health would be blow it out. Yeah, yeah sure. If, if you want to do that. Um, well, so, okay, so... Another middle step would be this. This is a tool you could buy to do this. Would be a belt sander, and then you have a, a jig that sits above the belt sander. And it's a swing, and it can swing um, the neck in a right. And you can have a different a rad- different yeah, a radial pattern, different arm length. Yeah, yes, the, the at either end. If you wanted, yeah, um, to create like a compound radius, right. Um, but I don't, I don't know if you can sorry, I don't know if you can hear that noise in the background here. Is it a kitten? It's my cat snoring. Wow, what a lazy cat. <laughs> He's living his best life, man. Yeah. yeah, so I guess you yeah, you could just do that. But then I don't know. I I think that you would probably want to be hands-on with that. Like that feels like a process that you'd want to take really carefully. Similar if... similarly, like with, with hand doing it by hand. Yeah. Um, well, I just like I like the idea of putting it on the machine. We could probe it. Uh, we could, <laughs> you know, I like my probe. You love your probing action. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know me, man. I'll always encourage you to to go for gold. But like, I think you would probably want to make in. You'd probably want to make more changes. Like, you know, are there places on the neck where you could put locating features? Oh yeah. Well, this is the what fixturing easier. Yeah. And, and Mark and I have been brainstorming this idea for a bit now, uh, mm-hmm. because it's another bo- big bottleneck for us, and it's something that takes like right. you know the, the the people we have here working with us are are skilled, and I could train somebody to do this, but it's it's kind of a it's like a stupid task almost. I feel bad right. passing this thing this off it's kind of like it's not fun to do and it's very extremely nitpicky like even though we are already right. being nitpicky so yeah right. mark and i've been talking about this a lot and he's got some you know big ideas about how we can achieve it i like to 
to really go as simple as possible. Um, so yeah, how do we how do we fixture it? How do we how do we work hold this? Really, is the only the only problem we're ha- we have. Yeah. And then how do we get a Honestly, result? You know, with CNC machining, that's pretty much always the problem. Yeah, like I guess so. work holding is pretty much always the problem. Like every other part of of CNC machining, you know, holding tolerance is probably the only other part that's like really difficult. And that's only when you're holding really tight tolerances. Mm-hmm. Like if you were to give it, be given like, you know, a part that's like plus or minus five thou, like you don't have to measure end mills. You don't have to oh, measure yeah. stock at that point. Like get a pair of calipers, you're, you're golden, you know, but, but like really tight tolerances and difficult fixturing, I think are the two parts of machining that are by far the hardest. Right. Well, so this is, I would say it kind of falls into the, both those categories because, mm-hmm. Well, tell me if you think these tolerances are tight, but um, yeah, fixturing it's it's hard because a we've got an already machined surface on the back, and depending on what model and what mm-hmm. custom neck shape we're doing, that surface is going to be different. So an arcade has a smaller, yeah, right. a shorter heel, and that's the thing you would fixture off of if that yeah. person wants it with a chunky neck versus like our standard medium C shape neck, which is thinner. You know, you've got your reference surfaces are all over them, all over the place. And then the tolerance we're holding is one thou over like 19 inches. Less than a thou, really. Right. And right. then it's and also right now radius. you're checking that with like a, sorry, right now you're checking that with a straight edge and feeler gauges. Yes. Or how you, right. Yeah, I think honestly to me, that sounds like not a good candidate for CNC. Hmm. Okay. Not at least for the moment, because when you have like so many different um, variables, like, you know, you're saying like the neck shape is going to change. All of your fixturing locations are going to be moving around. So you're either going to be making like a bunch of fixtures to automate this task that it isn't that bad. Let's be honest. Uh, I kind of, I kind of like, how long do you think it's taking you? Like, it could, is it like it, a half an hour fretboard? Or? It can, yeah, it can take a half an hour. Sometimes if they, if I, mm. you know, I'm I'm feeling off, I need right. to spend a little extra time doing it because there's no so like the most, result most days. Then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, most, I mean, the the measurement doesn't lie. Like you, you can, you have to. It has yeah. to be perfect. Um, but have I told you about our probe? <laughs> right so you're saying the the alternative could be just to slap it in whatever position and then, <laughs> yeah and then probe the shit probe out of away it. yeah right yeah yeah and honestly that's not really a solution that i think of because i don't have a probe mm. you know um my cat snoring is cracking me up over here he's really <laughs> this loud. is something i think in the show notes you have to put a video of your cat snoring i've yeah, never seen a cat that's... snore Oh, dude, he's yeah, he's a lazy bastard. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I guess if if you've got the probing cycles worked out, which we don't, you know, but we haven't even right. touched that. I mean, Mark, Mark's the definitely like he's the pro prober. Well, he's no because he has he's no he's probed a few things. He's gonna be the pro prober. Yeah, he's he's keen on it, and um, yeah, that's fair. I am too. Uh, I think there's a lot we can do with it. Well, for so for another example is uh, when we're making pick guards, this is going to be, this is kind of low hanging fruit for us. We, we just make a 2D, it's a 2D object with a chamfer. 
yeah. um, in three holes. Uh, we're going to vacuum fixture that, which is going to be a huge step up from what we're doing now, which is double stick taping it basically with, yeah, with right. green tape and super glue. We, mm-hmm. we take a piece of plastic down flat. So on the, the host will be vacuum. So we put a piece of plastic down. It's flat. It's going to cut a shape, three holes, chamfer. Um, right. But we have the material is a, a different thickness. Um, not every time, like, but batch to batch, the, the material we use is, is like changes in thickness. Right. We use different types of materials. So we're talking about like multiply ABS. So like three, like a black, white, black, like layer of ABS. Yeah. It's like laminated. Yeah. Tortoise shell, yeah. acrylic. So you would, you would just come in with a probe yeah. test, you know, a couple of spots, average that to be your, your thickness. Yeah. And then, and that'll dial in the chamfer. The, that's the important right. part. Uh, right. In the depth, the, the chamfer on the the holes, so that I can take it or the countersink rather. Um, right. So that I think will will be a good place to, um, you know, uh, dip our toes, test your probing yeah. chops. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and I mean for me, like the reason I've designed the new process for the kitchen knife the way I have is, so with the resolute with my hunting knife. Um, stock thickness the variation in stock thickness has been a real problem oh. and i have to buy precision ground stock um to avoid that and even then the precision ground stock isn't actually precision enough oh what's the tolerance you know, it, it's supposed to be plus minus a thousandth but i've seen 159 thousandths 160 thousandths you know which is three four thousandths off what it should be wow um and do you, you know, like had, it before you put it on and that will change how you approach it? Um, or no, I don't, I don't anymore. It's, it's just too much hassle to do that. So basically I changed the machining pr- uh, process so that it actually machines flat faces in some critical parts to make it so that the thickness doesn't matter as much. Interesting. This is where you would want like a grinder. Yeah. I, surface grinder. Surface nice. grinder. Um, but for the kitchen knife, what I'm actually doing is all of my stock is oversized and every surface is machined. So like the initial stock thickness just doesn't matter at all. So you, you're you're leveling um, the whole piece of material first? Uh, no, I'm not actually. I just, I don't even care. Um, I what Basically what I'm doing is I'm cutting some location faces um, to a specific height that... That and those serve as the locators for the second operation, and then I'm machining down, um, you know, to a certain thickness for the shape of the blade. But then outside of that, I just don't care. Um, I'm leaving the stock oversized, right? Because all of that is is scrap anyway. So oh, okay, yeah. Well, that's a smart fix. Yeah, and that's nice because it means that, like, you know, if if I know that I'm going to get a batch of stock that's like forty thou oversized, you know, so all of my process um, right now, all of the toolpaths have an allowance for about ten thou. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I know that I'm getting stock thicker than that, I just add, I just change the thickness of the stock in Fusion, and then all of the toolpaths will update. Right. Um, you know, because basically it's just saying like, uh, you know the thickness of the stock plus a 10th hour allowance. So if I change the stock height, then all of the tool paths regenerate um, to know that they have to just cut some more, you know, do some more passes. 
Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's going to be really nice too because it means I can be much more sorry, much less selective with the condition of the material. Right. So like I can buy like hot rolled or cold rolled material. Um, it doesn't have to be precision ground. So that's um, going to be cheaper. Well, it's not so much that it's cheaper. It's that some materials are really difficult to, to get at all, let alone to get them in a precision ground mm. uh, condition. Cause it, so it's going to make it a lot easier to source material. What, tell like Ronnie, were you buying metal from Starrett at one point? I have bought metal from Starrett, yeah. Um, all of my steel right now comes from a company in the States called Precision Marshall, um, who have overall been the best supplier of flat stock that I've had. Oh, cool. Um, there's another company in the States that was um, importing flat stock from Germany in hot rolled sheets, Blanchard grinding it, uh, vacuum annealing it, then precision grinding it and laser cutting it oh, for wow. me. Um, was that, how was that? that? Was, they were great. Like, so the company's called Knife Maker Kinetic. Um, you know, if anyone needs that kind of a process done, they are fantastic. Um, the main issue for me was that their lead times were really long. Mm. Like the shortest lead time I ever had with them was like nine or 10 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is long. Um, so, yeah, it just makes planning really difficult. And the the batch size was very large with them. Like I'd have to order, you know, two or 300 blanks at a time to make it reasonable in cost so who are they servicing um they actually their normal business is with like the paper industry so they'll make like slitting blades and blanking blades um you know so if you have like toilet paper you need to like cut it into rolls right so right. they use like these razor sharp discs that are like 12 inches in diameter and really thin and they actually like cut the 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 rolls with that kind oh, of stuff cool. um or when they're manufacturing like books like to read or like textbooks mm -hmm. they actually have these big blades that come in from the sides and trim the book to the final shape oh that's cool so they make all of those kinds of um blades for like you know plastic industry paper industry that kind of thing neat okay so knives wasn't necessarily that doesn't mean like boutique knives no i mean no like so there's they, they make knives. machine knives right. yeah they make what they call machine knives so it's as i said it's like slitting blades or whatever right. um and yeah, so like I, I uh, got connected with one of their like head guys on Practical Machinist. Um, his name's Cash. He's a super nice dude. And they offered to start um, importing and machining the steel for me. And yeah, they did a great job. It was just um, the surface grinding to get it to a point where the surface grinding could be used as is in one of my knives, I would be paying a lot of money for surface grinding. Right. Um, so like they were finishing all of the steel to a 32 RA finish for me. Um, and I think it would have to come down to like an eight finish, uh, for it to be like acceptable to go to a customer. Okay. Lower is shinier. Yeah. Lower is shinier. Okay. Yeah. So it's basically like how many micro inches up and down are the pits and valleys of that surface. Mm. Um, you know, so 32 is like 32 micro inches up and down eight is like eight micro inches um a micro and, inch yeah and it's a weird weird number um 
but yeah, basically I was like having to machine uh, those surfaces anyway. So I basically what I did was change my processes to be more tolerant of a greater variation in thickness. And then that let me buy off the shelf precision ground stock instead. Um, Smart. Which is much shorter lead time, less expensive, more available. This is somewhat relevant, but I do uh, remember you telling me a while ago, build in um, bigger tolerances where you can because it makes manufacturing something easier. Yeah, absolutely. And in this case, the bigger tolerances in the the input, like the output still has a very tight tolerance. Right. It's just that I'm designing the process to be more accepting of yeah. loose, looser tolerances. It, it's interesting, like, um, so manufacturing, it starts when you get the material, but just getting the material is a challenge in its own. Yeah sometimes 100% well like so I'm trying to slowly move to a new steel called AEBL which is um, a very fine grained stainless steel so it's actually tougher than my A2 tool steel and it's by far the toughest stainless steel that you can get the only problem is that like if I wanted to just get one piece of it to make one knife not a problem that's totally easy um, if I wanted to buy 5,000 pounds of it also not a problem but if I want to get 300 pounds it's a real issue oh, so everything in between is the challenge yeah everything in between is the challenge um, you gotta buy so like, five pounds or the that the lowest amount a hundred times at that that price point yeah you know like i if i wanted to get five thousand pounds i can get it um cold rolled to custom specifications like whatever thickness i want um, the lead time will be like a year. <laughs> like literally I've been told the lead time is like a year, but I can get it. You know, it's no problem. How long would that last year? <laughs> a long time, a very long time. But yeah, you know, the problem is like, I don't have the capital to buy $80,000 worth of steel. It's also just a bad idea. I mean, even yeah, if you cause did, like, what if I, what if I need a different thickness? Yeah. Or you're future, like, right? I don't want, I don't like this steel. Exactly. You know, so, um, you know, buying just a couple of sheets, you know, the sheets are like 72 pounds worth of steel each. Um, buying a couple of sheets would be ideal. But when you're buying a couple of sheets, you cannot um, specify your thickness unless you're, ha you're sending them somewhere else to have them custom blanched ground or something, right. which is very expensive. You know, So I have to buy sheets. Like I only need sheets that are 125 thousandths. I'm going to be having to buy sheets that are between 130 and 150, <laughs> you know, it's like the, the tolerance is quite wide. Okay. Um, and the, the finish of the sheets is it's a hot rolled finish. So it's like straight out of the mill. Um, it's been descaled, so it doesn't have any like black funk on it, but the surface is very rough and pitted, you know, so you need a certain amount of uh, allowance to finish away all of that, that pitting on the surface. Um, and yeah, if, if I wanted to like make my process really fussy and require a precise thickness and a precise, you know, finish, I would be waiting until the end of time or I'd be paying out the ass, you know, it'd be really brutal. Yeah. Wow. It's, um, it's a tricky problem. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, every, every part of manufacturing is difficult, right? Well, we, so we, we were on the hunt for some genuine mahogany, and Ooh. similarly, what we were looking wait, for... Wait, wait, wait. Hang on a second. Sorry, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Well, actually, is your cat purring again? No, no. What the hell is fake mahogany? Why, why is it genuine mahogany? <laughs> Good question. That's a great question, actually. 
genuine mahogany mm-hmm. uh, is also known as uh, Honduran mahogany. Oh, it's okay. the the Latin is Sweetenia macrophylla or Sweetenia macrophylia. Um, it's the species, right? But so what you get is like mahogany. You get the unquote. real McCoy, the real deal mahogany. It's it's uh, a um, tropical hardwood. It's so there's, the alternatives would be um, uh, mahoganoids. So you've got like right. kaya, which is an African mahogany, which isn't the same species. Is that spelled K O K H A Y A? Oh, I've never heard of that. You've got so if you just go to a lumberyard in North America and you're like, I want some mahogany for my deck, they might or my give you. Bathroom. I don't actually know the answer. They might. They, they uh, well certainly, uh, kaya or African mahogany is very commonly used. That's what Gibson's using. I think a lot of mm. the time now. Um, Sipo is another one. Sapili. I don't know the Latin names right. for these ones. Because right. um, I know that Honduran mahogany is like a, a controlled good. Yes. Right? It's a, like it's, you have to provide certificates for it to be able to ship it and all that kind of yeah, stuff, right? Yeah. It's it's a very highly controlled. Um, and Honduran doesn't mean it comes from Honduras either. Actually, I don't, oh, think, interesting. I don't think you can get Honduran mahogany from Honduras anymore mm. which is why we call it, we call it genuine mahogany we have some honduran mahogany that was imported like a long time ago before those specific regulations um, right but uh it's just it's it's sweetenia macrophylla it's it's the, the species so another version is feed fijian or fiji mahogany and that mm. is the same species the british came to south america or central america rather they took seeds of the Honduran or of the mahogany tree, mm, planted right. it in Fiji, grew all this Fijian mahogany um, for the boat building industry, and then boat building, right. making boats out of mahogany became obsolete or out of wood. I should look into that more before. Don't don't quote me on that because I actually I mean mahogany. I don't know how common that is. Oak I think is like a more common wood, big like big right. ship building. But you definitely there right. are mahogany boats. Um, so fancy ass boat. Yeah, it is a fancy boat. You see them out in Muskoka <laughs> all the time. If you're from Ontario, right. you you know, might know. Um, so I guess sourcing this like lumber is like really a big deal. It's a trick because it's it's um, to get it in. What we, what we real what we want is ten quarter. So ten quarter is two and a half inches thick. And right. that's an uncommon size. You typically get it an eight quarter, just two inches thick, or twelve quarter. I don't know if you can, if my if you can hear this, but my air no, no, we can hear totally fine. Is uh, the air compressor is very quiet though? Yeah, screw compressors. Yeah, right. I love um, the measurements for wood. Hilarious. I know it's ten, so funny. ten quarter inches makes two and a half inches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah great. ten quarters of an inch stacked on yeah. top of each other. Amazing. Yeah. Right. So, so it's an unusual thickness. Um, right. And the reason we wanted to do that, to use that thickness, is because um, ten quarter can be used for um, it. Our, our our the bodies of our guitars are unusually thick compared to like right. a Fender, which is like one and three quarter inches thick. Uh, Gibsons are thicker, uh, but um, 
I think they probably still get away with two quarter or sorry, 10 quarter or eight quarter, uh, two inch thick because they have a big <laughs> maple cap on top. We don't do that. Right. So our bodies are a little thicker. So by going up to 10 quarter, we, um, it makes it easier to make a body. You don't, right. you're not as limited by the thickness. Cause sometimes if you buy two inch thick mahogany, it comes in a little under and that makes mm. it tougher to process. Um, yeah, totally. to, to get the final thickness that you actually need out of it. Um, it's something funny with the lumber industry is like anytime you buy a size that you generally get less wood than that. Yeah, you, you know, might. Two by four isn't two by four. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in, in the machining industry, if you ever get stock undersized, like that's a big deal. Yeah, you're getting screwed. No one gives you stock undersized. You're still kind of getting, I guess, a little screwed in, in wood too, but I think it's genu genu generally accepted maybe yeah, that right. your final thickness is going to be significantly less than the original thickness. Mm -hmm. um, we just don't have that much uh, control, right? Well, we, we can't lose that much. We, like our, right. the, the body thickness of our bodies on this, on the CNC had to be no thinner than 1.9 inches. So we only have a hundred right. thou to work with if they come in exactly at two. Sometimes they come in over, like uh, I guess it depends on the, the mill you're getting it from. Like we'll get right. to eight quarter that's two point one inches thick. Right. So, anyways, we just we just got where we have a thousand board feet of ten quarter waiting for us. And what's nice about it is we can, we like it's it where I just need to arrange it delivery. That's a lot mm. of wood, but it's uh, it can be used for all of our um, models, like the arcade, the signature, the ultralight, which are varying right. thicknesses, and it can be used for neck stock as well right nice. so it's it to us it's ver it's much more versatile uh dimension yeah. right but i guess you had to buy a lot of it to get we that. did because i so i'm like kind of you know I've, i'm we have a partner company that we work with that imports mm -hmm. uh hardwood lumber now like the the premier uh, hardwood people in canada and in the u.s uh, they have right. um businesses in the US as well. So they're like on the hunt for this. It's kind of a unique thing and we want really high quality stuff. So we've got pattern grade. We found pattern grade, which is the highest quality um, grade for genuine mahogany. Right. Um, and But we had to take the full thousand board feet. So, and what the hell is a board foot? That's, that's, a, that's a measure of length and width, right? And thickness. And thickness. Yeah. Oh, so to okay. get a board foot, you take the length Multiply that by the width. Multiply that by the thickness. <laughs> divide it by 144. That's how I know how to do it. It's a, a similar oh, equation God. to get to square footage. You just don't need the thick thickness. So it's actually a measure of volume. Yeah. Right. Okay. Woodworkers, <laughs> crazy busts. It's right. So a thousand board feet. That's so you're probably getting it in like two foot wide boards or something. No, uh, they come in varying widths because it's you know raw material. Think about a tree is. Mm round right. so the center of it if the board comes out of the center it's going to be really wide so you can get it up to you know i i have pieces of wood that are 24 25 inches wide right um but that, uh, some of it's four inches six inches mm. that's not it i guess that's like for you guys that's only a neck then yeah it's less i that's bodies. not as versatile a width for us right. but we we have to take what we can you know you, you you're buying when you buy a lift of lumber, you're getting a tree. 
just cut up right. in various in like a bunch of different shapes. So you picture cu- cutting up a cucumber, right. <laughs> you know, like you get the thick part in the middle and then it gets thinner towards the outside. And But I guess you're getting, um, it's all going to be quarter-sawn lumber from no. individual trees, right? Not no, it's not quarter-sawn. No. Some of it will be. Depends how mm. they cut it. And you don't get to specify any of this. That sounds you frustrating. could. I think if you were to say, I only exclusively want quarter-sawn, you're going to pay a premium for that. Right. And we don't actually need just quarter-sawn. We like flat-sawn for mm, okay. bodies. We need quarter-sawn for necks, but it doesn't have to be sawn as quarter-sawn. When they're cutting up the tree, they could saw it in a certain way that would yield the most quarter Sawn, mm-hmm. but then pieces. you're wasting more the, lumber, right? Yeah, you got to. It's trickier to do, so you pay a premium for it. Um, right. But we could buy flat lumber, so lumber that uh, that if you looked at the end grain, the the grain is going flat along the it's parallel to the, the surface of it. Right. We tip that on its side. That you get a neck out of it. The neck, if you were to look at the neck, you'd be like, oh, this is quarter sawn because the grain is running right. um, horizontal. In parallel to the to the neck, right? Yeah. So for people that don't um, work much in wood, like, do you want to explain the difference really quickly between flat sawn and, and quarter sawn? Sure. That's so... basically it, right? It's the direction of the grain, yeah, versus like the sh- outline of the the lumber. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain that. I don't know if I know. Well, I know for sure that quarter sawn is when all of the the grain, like the rings in the wood, are um, perpendicular to the surface. Yeah. So they're at 90 degrees. They're going up and down. Yeah. And then flat sawn, so like quarter sawn lumbers, as far as I know, is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the most desirable because it's very dimensionally stable. And it's the most desirable and, for neck, guitar necks. Right. Uh, right. Not always the most desirable for other things. Right. Because it's not going to have any like figure and so on. Well, it can have what you can get is quarter flower. Uh, you get this sort mm. of like, um, so like in maple, you see it, it like looks pixelated and some people don't like mm. the way mm-hmm. that looks. So a quarter sawn might not be as um, desirable in like a floor right. per se, it's, uh, right. like if you're making floorboards or something like that. Interesting. So yeah, it sounds like you've got a lot of lumber on the way. We do have a lot of lumber. <laughs> so anyways, it's just thinking about like, there's so much that you need to think about in terms of buying materials, like yeah. your like your you know metal or like buying wood these are all like raw materials like it's not it's not so simple yeah particularly when you have like really high expectations for that material like i have very high structural expectations for my material you know and and um so when i was working with knife maker kinetic they deal with a steel mill in germany uh called uh liebenstahl that's like a small family-owned steel mill um, and they are responsible for pouring the steel and then cutting it into ingots um, and rolling it. So they have a mill. And then they ship it to Knife Maker Kinetic and they do the grinding. Um, and we got a batch of steel from them one time that unfortunately, when, you, when you're when you sawing the ingot, you're supposed to cut off the top because you end up with a lot of slag and, and inclusions in the top. So like bits of glass and and all sorts of other stuff that are kind of byproducts of the steel making process. And unfortunately, they either didn't cut deep enough or they accidentally used the top piece that they were supposed to be throwing away. And so I got a bunch of steel that had inclusions. Oh, weird. And when I, 
Yeah. And when I heat treated it, I do vacuum heat treat, or I did at that point do vacuum heat treat and the inclusions expanded. And so I ended up with this steel that was like full of blisters. Whoa. Had you ever seen that before? No, I've never seen it before you, or since. Or heard of it? Nope. Wow. Yeah. You um, just picture metal being uh, just so like, uh, like a monostructure. Yeah. Homogenous. Yeah. Yeah. But it's totally not. Um, and f- fortunately, Liebenstahl and, uh, sorry, Lomenstahl and Knife Maker Kinetic were both fantastic. Like I actually sent samples back to them for lab analysis. They confirmed that it was inclusions from the mill. And then they uh, gave me a replacement batch of material. Did it take, uh, what was the lead time on that? It did take a while. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> good, good for them but, for sorting. But yeah, they, they totally made it, made it right. You know? Um, and there was some usable material in there. So I got, you know, some usable and then a bunch free, but yeah, as you said, you know, like sourcing material, um, particularly when you have high expectations is really, really difficult. Well, and you know, these like people like, uh, dedicate their whole profession to, mm-hmm certain materials you know like there's people out there who know everything about steel everything about yep. wood um, yeah or about sourcing those yeah things. how to find they're it. like supply chain specialists yeah you know? so i mean the mahogany yeah, thing like mahogany like the person we are buying working with to source it who works with upper canada forest products who's our like partner company um right. he's got decades i think of experience and uh in all these connections and it's like you can't just like google buying but buy genuine mahogany you'll get all the people that sell it but you can't you don't get the people that source it and they're they're somewhat private about how about who they're actually contacting uh yeah because i imagine there would be a lot of money if you could if you have the right connections yeah well and if you could sell fake genuine mahogany fake yeah. mahogany then there's probably a lot of money to be made because people will be willing to pay yeah. a premium for yeah. the real stuff i bet i mean this is why it's such a regulated industry though and it's mm-hmm. like they can be they don't have to disclose who they're getting it from but they, what they do have to disclose is the chain of custody so yeah right. you know you know exactly where it's come from what hands it's passed through ultimately yeah uh, and I, my understanding is they have to do that to try and help prevent deforestation exactly right? like, exactly i mean no it's going so, into old growth forests and cutting shit down. yeah it's an extremely renewable resource but it's also a fragile resource yeah uh so right. it's they they have to be and that's so so a lot of the the lumber we're getting is from um community forests where the, the people that live there are the ones that practice the um selective forestry replanting right it's generations of, of, of families. So it's it's interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super cool. Well, geez, we were, we're all over the place today. Should we just uh, pick up tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we should probably wrap up. I think that's a show. We've got some questions for the next show. Oh, it's a um, bummer when we don't get to the questions. Oh, it's fine. That's fine. Uh, Scott Hoadley gave us some questions because he felt sorry for us not having enough questions. Oh, so I think he's thanks, he's okay to wait for a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I find that stuff super interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're as you said, like it's it's crazy how much work. Like I've I've literally spent two years trying to source the steel yeah. that I want to move to next. Um. You know, and I'm sure that you had a lot of time in sourcing that mahogany as well. Yeah, well, and, and I don't know, but the mahogany, it's like 
you might not ever find that specific stuff again. Yeah. Because right. it's just, it's natural. It grows, you know, then it's not being manufactured. Right. And it's, yeah, it's very different to, um, you know, when you can just buy like 60, 61 aluminum off the shelf, right. 50 suppliers will have it mm -hmm. uh, or like 10, 18 cold rolled steel, like no, no problem. You know, it's, yeah, it's big. It is cool though. Big how, difference, big process. how the like parallels between the two very different products we manufacture. How yeah. Many parallels yeah are. Right. I think too, it comes down to, um, the, the level of quality that we desire. I think that's probably the biggest, the thing that draws the biggest parallels. Mm. Cause like if I was just happy to just use whatever, whatever you could find Chinese tool steel or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Then it'd be pretty easy. But like, you know, I have had different suppliers over time, but from month to month, I only ever buy from the same supplier. I have one supplier that I trust. You know, I know I, whenever I send a, um, a sales order to them, it's, you know, steel will only be supplied from this mill. Interesting. You know, um, because yeah. Oh, you know, so they, you, you're speci you're specifying the mill it comes from. Well, I'm specifying Precision Marshall only. So I buy through a distributor in Canada that stocks Precision Marshall. Okay. And I specify only Precision Marshall. Um, cool. And then they have their own quality control. I've talked to. So them. they might be um, buying it from different mills, but they are. Actually, I know what their mill is. Okay. They are they the reason I deal with. Um, so I deal with a place called the steel store in Canada and they are, uh, the regional distributor for Bowler Autohome, which is a European, uh, steel mill, steel manufacturer and precision Marshall only buys their tool steel from Autohome. Oh, cool. Um, so basically I source through them to get steel from Europe, from Autohome. Um, so yeah, it's it, it, as you said, it's like this weird chain of custody. You know, the 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 steel mills in Europe that are controlled by Autohome, right? And then they're shipping raw, like hot rolled steel to Precision Marshall, who are doing the final processing of it. And then I'm buying from an Autohome subsidiary in Canada mm -hmm. that buys from Precision Marshall. Um, but yeah, you know, I do that to avoid getting sub quality steel from like china or something thrown into the process yes, and yeah. then you know supplied without me being aware of it yeah that's kind of wild right maybe you should just start making your own steel really go <laughs> have did, have you and i talked about that is that why you're bringing no. that up because i have actually thought about oh. <laughs> of course yeah um it may actually be something i do down the line um basically i have looked into doing my own melts of steel and then uh, doing inert gas atomization where you make like steel powder and then you consolidate that into bars by um, heating it and then pressure welding it. So you're basically like putting it in a big press and squishing it till it becomes a solid. Um, but the really cool thing about that process is I could make bars to the exact size that I need and all of my materials would end up being recycled. So like all the steel chips and everything right. that I make from machining could just go right back into the next mill. How realistic is that? Surprisingly more realistic than you would think, actually. Okay. All right. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm going to do it in my current location because I just don't have enough space. But like... That might keep the guy next door up. <laughs> if you <laughs> like forging your own metal steel. shirtless yeah. banging on it with the sledgehammer. Uh, it's not going to be any of that. <laughs> Indulge It's not going to be Conan the Barbarian. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, like I can I can literally buy like fifty two one hundred like bearing quality um, carbon steel from McMaster for like a completely reasonable price, <laughs> and that would be one of my main feedstocks. So like rather than using like a shitty unknown quality like low carbon steel or recycled steel, I would actually buy like bearing quality steel. And then melt that and add the extra ingredients that I need. Oh, crazy. So the extra chromium and so on. And then that would good. be my final product. Yeah. Um, so I'd be like skipping a bunch of the steps because well, I don't have to source like raw iron, you know, but like. Right. We'll see, man. We'll see. Down the down the road. I don't think it's a next five it's years. It's funny time. though where you, your head goes. Like, I mean, I mean we, we keep thinking about like, oh, if only we could do our own nickel plating. Mm-hmm. Got, you know, parts. Metal parts that we want nickel plated. Like, why don't you get into your own forestry, man? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, I could. Genuine mahogany in my backyard. Easy, yeah, right. <laughs> this is. <laughs> I don't think Canada's the climate. No, right. Go to Fiji. Buy some land in Fiji. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. All right, man. We could, you know, us. We could shoot the shit all night. So we should probably call it. We should say goodbye to everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, to our crazy ramblings. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone's still listening, that is what's Scott's saying. listening. Uh, uh, Scott's listening. We, we know. Um, I hope everyone has a good week, and we will talk to you next week. All right, see ya.